If you have your Bibles this morning, today we'll be back in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And for those of you that are visiting today, we have been uh, working now for the last year or so um, out of the book of 2 Corinthians. And we've been focusing on ministry. We've made this year uh, in our church the uh, year of families ministering together. And and we've set a couple goals and everybody is uh, working to get the families where uh, everybody is serving the Lord together and, and how important that is. And uh, we have been coming through the book of Second Corinthians because that great book really lays out the handbook of every aspect of ministry. And book by book, it deals with a different subject that uh, we need to understand as the minister. And in chapter 9 and 10, we have been looking at uh, the heart of the minister. And in chapter 10, we've been looking at the mind of the minister. And um, we, uh, I, I told you that in dealing with people <clears throat> and understanding yourself, you have to understand why people do the things that they do, why they say the things that they say, and basically why people think the way that they think. And uh, last time, uh, we were off last week because we got into uh, uh, Easter Sunday, but again, we talked about a sermon that goes right along with that, and that is the, the pattern that we need to have in our life to be everything that God wants us to be. And we talked about that. That was a great tool that you'll be able to use <clears throat> in dealing with people. But uh, uh, last uh, time we were in this was the week before. We only got through verses 6 and 7. And uh, those verses say, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look on the things after the outward appearance? If any man trust to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us today to uh, glean from the Word of God uh, all that you have for us. We love you. We ask you now to bless us as we get to uh, all that we uh, uh, want to accomplish today, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. We ask it for his sake. Amen. You know, um, <clears throat> last time we were here, we learned two great principles. We learned the aspect of taking revenge on yourself. And <clears throat> you remember I told you that that is when you do something wrong with God, you disobey God, it deals with your, how uh, you deal with yourself, how you view how that you have let God down. And instead of blaming others for your problem, blaming others for your circumstances, recognizing that we make our own choices. And many times we make the wrong choice. And with that comes consequences. And instead of looking for a way out of it, recognizing because we have a real relationship with God, that that's the relationship that suffered. If you're saved today, there should be nothing more devastating to you in your life than you losing your fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we know that <clears throat> so very many few things, uh, very many few things can make that happen. It doesn't take some big catastrophe. It doesn't take you murdering somebody. It doesn't take you doing something that, uh, you know, we would look at and say, wow. It, it doesn't take that. It takes the most minuscule things in our lives <clears throat> that can break that fellowship. And when that fellowship gets broken, it's our attitude about what we've lost with God. And that's the key to understanding that great principle about taking revenge on yourself. And then we looked at a great principle that I want to even develop more today. I, I, didn't, I couldn't do it justice in just the one week that uh, we had there. And that is the principle of not looking on the outward appearance of something, but rather uh, looking on the inward. And you remember we talked about the example of David and Saul how that Israel wanted a king. 
and they wanted Saul because from the appearance, Saul looked like he was the guy for the job. But he wasn't, was he? And God gave us that great verse that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And we developed that. And yet, <clears throat> the key to that second principle is simply understanding what happened the day that we got saved. What transpired inwardly and how it affected our soul, which in turn changed our outward, our attitude and our action. The day you and I got saved, our salvation was the beginning of the original process for our teaching and a principle that we use on attitude versus action. You see, when you got saved, it was inward. It was inward. And I'd like to develop that concept a little farther today. Uh, so many of you uh, want to learn, and we've talked about this, and you've came over and seen me. So many of you uh, wanted to learn uh, the, the, how to minister with people and how uh, to get it down completely and understand it. And things like this will help you. When we trusted Christ, our salvation was instantaneous. It was immediate. It wasn't a process to get saved. It wasn't something that you had to climb spiritual levels and then God said, okay, you're saved. No, salvation is immediate. It's instantaneous. It takes place in a quick twinkling of an eye. Uh, it's, 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 it's immediate in everything that we do. But it also salvation is totally internal. Bible talks about us getting a new heart. Bible talks about us getting, becoming a new nature. Bible talks about through a new birth. We get a new family, God's family. People love our church, and I hear it all the time <clears throat> that when they come to things or activities that we have, they come away saying, I love that church simply because it's just like one family. And it is. It's because we're in God's family, and that's the family that we were all born into uh, because it's a new family, because we got a new name through a new birth. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, and all things become new. All of that, every one of those, is on the inside of us. We have a, a teaching here that once you go through discipleship one, if, if you so desire, we have a, what I would call discipleship two, another level where someone will bring you through and basically show you the seven things that changed about you the day that you got saved. Every one of those seven things are things that are inside of you. What Paul's saying here in chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, and it's very important that we get this. And I want you to completely understand this concept today for as best you can. If What Paul's saying here, if you don't see the outward change, then don't buy the fact that there's an inward change just because somebody says so. Appearance. Appearance in life, most things are not as they first appear. And I think you'll learn that with time. And many times, how people want to make themselves appear is not really how they appear. Um, everybody's been on blind dates, you know, at some point in your life. And uh, on your first date, everybody's on their best. He'll open the door for you. He'll do this. He'll do that. I mean, yeah, why? Because uh, he wants to make a good impression. She'll look as good as she can ever look. She'll smell good. She'll look good. She'll be everything. And, you know, everybody's out to make a good impression. Once you get the relationship, oh, then it's, and then it, then it all changes, see? Then you're waiting, you know, an hour for him to open the door. He's gone, man. He, he left, you know? <laughs> it, things are not always as they appear. They never as they appear. I remember just a, a couple of weeks ago, 
we were driving down the road and <clears throat> we pulled up to a red light and there was a car in front of us and it was kind of twilight and dark and you couldn't see, but it looked like one large person sitting in the car driving. And all of a sudden, they broke apart and it was two people. They were just snuggled up together. My wife looks over at me and she says, we used to do that. <laughs> I looked over at her and said, I haven't moved. <laughs> so, <clears throat> things change. Things change. Things are not always as they appear. A couple of weeks ago, I gave you a great verse uh, on our inward strength uh, and dealing with the mind of the minister, how we think. And it was in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and it said, <clears throat> it said to gird up the loins of our mind. And then he also said, as obedient children, not fashioning yourself according to the former lusts of your ignorance. That simply means when you really get saved inwardly, when a man or a woman <clears throat> truly gets born again inwardly, then there has to be a change outwardly for it to be real. According to the Bible, what Paul's saying is this. If you don't see the outward change in their life, and they continued, and you continue to see the former lust of the flesh, there's something wrong. He simply say, don't buy it on the appearance of what somebody displays or even what somebody says. Real salvation always starts inside and will always manifest itself outside. Now, I've stated on my position on this many, many times, and uh, don't let this scare you, uh, but this, you know, it's a thing where we live in a Laodicean church period. We know that. And we know that uh, the two uh, premier periods of time in church history was uh, what we call the Philadelphian church age, which ran from about 1600 up to about 1900. And then from about 1900 on up to where we're at today, uh, we, live into, we live in what is called the Laodicean church period. You see it on our chart on there. You find it in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The seven churches laid out very clearly. The contrast between those two churches is immediate when you see it. The Philadelphian church was a church that was on fire for God. In fact, it's called the church of the open door. And in history, it's a church that because they had the word of God, because they believed the word of God, because they obeyed the word of God, that God opened the door for the great opportunities. And it's a time when probably three quarters of the world had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But that time ended around 1900, and we entered in through the Laodicean church period, where Philadelphia means brotherly love, and it was a church that was built on loving your brother and giving them the gospel. Laodicea means rights of the people. And Laodicea and Philadelphia are a great contrast in the study. I have a sermon on it called The Tale of Two Churches, and it details out the difference and the contrast between the two. But when you get into Laodicea, they're no longer interested in other people. They're only interested Christians now. Christians. Now, I'm not talking about the world. This is Christians. This is churches. They're only interested about themselves. So you see Christians that want their rights, human rights, social rights, all the rights that go along with it when the truth of the matter is in, in, in Philadelphia, the only right they knew we had was a right to die and burn in hell for all of eternity. Where we got the idea we as God's people have rights when the Bible says we're bought with a price and once we're saved, we don't have any rights. That's the difference between the contrast. Philadelphia is called the church of the open door. You know what he calls Laodicea? Church of the closed door. The door's been shut. And that's really where our dilemma is today. 
And I've stated my position on this many times. I really, and I, I tell you, it, this is my own thing now. I, I don't, you don't hear me preach this a lot. I will say it in Bible study. I'm saying it today to make my point. But I don't go around on a soapbox saying this, but I really believe this. I really don't think that most people who claim to be saved today are really truly saved. I don't. And maybe you'll better understand my position and maybe even become your position well, by the time I'm done today. In the Bible, we have something called the witness of the Spirit, Romans chapter 8. Joe uh, asked this in Thursday night Bible study the other night. It was a great question. And I told you that I would talk about it because I was going to use it again today. Now, that witness of the Spirit that the Bible talks about, it's not a feeling. It's not some fuzzy, warm feeling that you get or some oochie-coochie, Holy Spirit of God, tingle up my back, make my hair stand on my head type of feeling. The witness of the Spirit in the Bible are four or five clearly defined things. And when you don't see those four or five things in somebody's life, then there's some problems there you must deal with. And, and one of them is, is clearly the concept of repentance. Salvation without repentance will never be true salvation. Repentance means you turn from something. Repentance means you're going in a lifestyle this way, and then you repent means that you go another direction. You can't be truly saved and repent and go the same direction you were going. And we have lost the concept of repentance today. We really have. And I think that's probably one of the biggest issues that we struggle with. When you don't ever see those things in a person's life, it's hard to believe that they've really been, had an inward change according to the Bible. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, you see, you see wives with, with, with husbands who care nothing about the things of God. You see husbands with wives who care nothing about the things of God. You see parents with their children. And the children care nothing about the things of God. You see, people who live, as Paul said, in their former lusts, and yet still claim to be saved. And yet, the wives with the husbands, the husbands with the wives, the parents with the children, if you'd ask them, are they saved? They'd say, absolutely. They were saved when they were four, saved when they were five, saved when they were ten. In most cases, not all, in most cases, in my humble opinion, based on the Bible, I don't think a lot of people that claim that they're truly saved have ever really been saved. You see, I don't think you can get saved truly and then still live in your former lust like it's okay. I came to Kansas City in 1975, and uh, I was a youth pastor for six or seven years. And I, I've seen Christians, uh, I've seen uh, children of, of Christian men who were deacons, I've seen children of pastors. I've seen ch- children of church leaders, prominent people in churches that were as lost as you could be if it was based on their attitude and their actions. And yet the parents would defend it to the point that they were saved. But you see, in a situation like that, and I learned it, I learned most of what I learned in the ministry the hard way by doing it wrong and then getting my tail chewed out and feathers blasted off, and then, you know, I'll make the same mistake once, but usually not twice, unless it's something I really like to do. But anyway, I'll never forget, I learned quickly that, you see, they needed their kid to be saved. How embarrassing it would be to be a pastor and your child be lost, 
How embarrassing it would be to be a deacon and your kid to be lost. How embarrassing it would be to be a Sunday school teacher teaching others when your own kid don't come to church and is lost. See how embarrassing that is? So in those kind of cases, it's a, this is a pattern, by the way, they have to have their children saved. Some women have to have their husband saved. Some husbands have to have their wife saved when they're not because it's an embarrassment to them. It's an embarrassment. I'll never forget in 1976, the first youth camp we ever had. Uh, it was at Beth Eden in Lebanon, Missouri. Beth Eden Bible Camp. And we had about, oh, 100 kids go. It was the first year that I was youth pastor, and up to this point in the church, it had all been fun and games. When I stepped into the pulpit, they all thought they died and went to hell. <laughs> fun and games were over. But I'll never forget those days. We had our first camp. And I felt like, you know what? <clears throat> We might as well get this thing going. So my first camp speaker to a fun games bunch of kids who knew nothing about the Bible, cared nothing about the Bible, that were just as bratty as you could ever want, was Mel Sabaka. <laughs> we had, some of you were at that camp. I think, Penny, you were at that camp. I know Steve Brackeen at that point was only 15 years old. I know he was there. He's one that we chased around the camp with the dogs all night long trying to find him. His brother was there. His mom and dad were there. They were counselors in my high school class at that point. And so I'm not making this up. Forty kids got saved. I mean, along about Wednesday night, a whole, I mean, it was a battle. Monday night and Tuesday night and all day, kids were fighting. And it was like, there was like a satanic stronghold going on in this camp. Mel and I stayed up one night, talked about it and prayed about it. And Wednesday, the camp broke. And I mean, people, kids were coming down. They were getting right with God, and 40 kids got saved. Some of them were kids of deacons. Some of them were kids with, with uh, pastors. Some of them were kids of, of leaders in the church and Sunday school teachers in the church. And I was young back then. I thought I can see now myself riding back in the church bus, coming into the church parking lot, and the whole church turning out that salvation, that these kids are saved. I can could, I could imagine myself like Caesar riding in a front chariot going into Rome <laughs> with everybody throwing accolades and throwing this. You got my kid saved. You did this. What a wonderful camp. My kid was lost, but now he's found. Thank you so much. Hail Caesar. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> it was one of the most greatest experiences of my life I must have got my rear end chewed out. I had one late, more than one lady who was, her husband was a deacon, come up and accuse me of convincing her kid that he was lost when he wasn't. Oh, it was a time. I learned some things in those early years. How dare you convince my child that he wasn't saved? Over the years, I've seen husbands with wives where the spouse cared absolutely nothing about God, the Word of God, the ministry of God, or the people of God. I mean, nothing about them spiritual in any form or fashion, and yet, oh yeah, I'm saved. Based on what? That they say so? You know, in a court of law, in a court of law, it's not what you think, or it's really not what you believe, or it's nearly what you say. In a court of law, it's only what you can prove. And you can say you're saved all you want, you can go back to some experience all you want. But what Paul's saying here is don't go by appearances. And if, if you're truly saved inwardly, then there has to be something outwardly. 
And uh, based on, on, on what the Bible says, you know, this is why I, I worry about people so many times. I mean, I do. I've seen them make excuses. I've seen them blame it on others. I've seen them, I've seen them uh, set up two sets of rules. I've seen everybody, uh, you know, uh, beat around the bush instead of dealing with a real issue. But as I said a couple of weeks ago, you've got to remember that uh, when you have the witness of the Spirit, this is what's missing. In a court of law, you want to prove your point, call in a witness. If you want to prove you're saved, you've got to have a witness that proves it. Witness of the Spirit. It's just that simple. Now, I'm going to confess some things to you today because confession is good for the soul. Not bad things. But I want to tell you what my problem is. And before some of you laugh at me, like somebody is right now, (laughs) before you laugh at me, I'm going to tell you something. Some of you are headed for the same problem I've got. So how do I look at that? We'll all form a support group for each other down the road someplace. I've got got a major issue. And my major issue simply is, not only do I not get along with the world, which is a good thing, I don't get along with Christianity, which unfortunately is also a good thing. I've been in this book too long. I'm as old school as you're ever going to find. I grew up in an era where people still believed the Bible was the Word of God and meant what it says. I, I grew up in a time and heard some of the greatest, last of the Philadelphian age preachers that are all dead now that the world has ever seen. I grew up in a ministry under a man that was as old school as you could ever, and I know everybody talks about old school. You know, you know everybody who's been in the Army today, when you say I'm in the Army, the guy will say, who was in the Army 20 years ago, well, the Army today ain't nothing like the Army back then. You'll say, well, I'm, in the Mar- I'm going into Marine Corps tomorrow. Ah, oh, the Marine Corps uh, that I was in 20 years ago, uh, this baby stuff compared to what it was. And everybody says those things, but you know what? There's a lot of truth in that. I guarantee you, if you went into Marine Corps in the 50s and the 60s, it was a lot rougher than going through now. I went through basic training in 1968. Back in 1968, they could still hit you. <laughs> now all they can do is talk loud at you. I learned cuss words in basic training I didn't even know existed. <laughs> but it's a benefit because I can use them today, and, 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 and I have to. <clears throat> I was running down the road one time, and they had rifles up high over your head, <clears throat> and I didn't think the guy was looking, so I dropped mine because my arm was tied. Somebody come up behind me with a rifle, was a drill sergeant, and hit me with a vertical butt stroke in the back of my head, knocked my helmet off, knocked me down. I mean, you can't do that today. Can't touch them. Can't cuss them. And I'm not for cussing. Publicly, I'm not for cussing. <clears throat> I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not advocating cussing. But I'm saying. I mean, in the army. I mean, when I was in the army, when when Bill was in the Marines back there, when some of you older guys were in. You know what? I'm not saying the soldiers aren't great today. They are. I have all the respect for them in the world. I'm just saying things change. Old school, new school. I mean, there was a time in World War, there's a time in World War II that your strategy of winning a battle was if you get in a war, let's win it. They attacked me with a, a, a platoon, I'm going to send a company. They bring a company, I'm going to send a battalion. They send a battalion, I'm going to send a division. You made sure you win. Now we talk. You know what I do with North Korea? <laughs> now, I know you're all glad I'm not president. <laughs> 
But I'll tell you what, this, this pussyfooting around with North Korea, this little fat Pillsbury Doughboy guy over here who, who uh, I, first I'd do is send him Dennis Rodman. I said, you can keep him. <laughs> I said, we'll give you Dennis Rodman. You just disarm everything you got. He'd probably do it. Dennis Rodman would probably do it. <laughs> but I, if I was the president of the United States and they're making all this saber rattling, we're going to destroy this and putting all these and put GI pictures up on the thing and they're shooting at them and all that stuff. No, I know what I, it all means nothing. But you know what? Somebody's got to call their bluff. You can't just simply say, let them do things and say things. And this is why the other countries around the world don't respect us. We just, we just fold up every time. We'll send them more money, you see. We'll, find, we'll send Hillary Clinton over to try to work the problem out. We'll, we'll send somebody over to talk. Sometimes talking doesn't do anything anymore. Amen. Sometimes you've got to get up and say, ladies and gentlemen, fellow Americans, I know that uh, there's a lot of stuff going on over there, and uh, there's a lot of things that, uh, that North Korea is trying to say and do, and they're threatening the United States, and I know some of you are worried about that. But let me just assure you that... If they would ever attack either South Korea or they would ever send anything, one missile, even in our direction on Friday, there will be no North Korea on Saturday. <laughs> but we're not going to do that. See, that's old school. I mean, I'm not totally out of step with the world, which is a good thing. I'm totally out of step with the Christian world. I am so sick of weak Baby, spoiled Christians who can't stand for anything yet fall for everything. I'm tired of it. I am. I, I, I just don't get how God's people can look at any given situation, see and understand a clear principle in the Bible that's involved and just pretend it's not there and, and it doesn't matter. When we started our church, it's why I called it Old Paths. I called it out of Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 16. I did it for two reasons, because that's where our church is at. It says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand in ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your soul. But they said, We will not walk therein. Old paths. Now, I did it for another reason, because you can always tell where people know about the Bible when they ask what church name is. I'll say, What's the name of your church? I'll say, Old paths. Old patch. I'll get nine or seven things, then I'll, I'll help them out. It's in the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, golden pages, black cover, Jeremiah 6, 16. The, oh, the old paths. Yeah, the old paths, you see. I picked that name because we're on the old path. We ain't going to the new path. You say, well, I like the new path. Help yourself, sweetheart. I don't. I've seen some of them new paths where they lead, and you're going to see it today before we're done. Now, let me illustrate what I'm trying to say here. Hopefully, you'll see what Paul is talking about and what I'm trying to talk about. But if I brought in a group of people today, and we'll say, and if you're one of these people, this is no reflection on you, and I'm buy you lunch this afternoon, or you can buy me lunch this afternoon, however you want. We'll have a good time together. Let's just say I brought in a Mormon up here, and a Jehovah Witness over here, a Church of Christ over here, and a Seventh-day Adventist over here. Now, one thing about all these groups that is true, none of them believe anything remotely that the Bible teaches. Most of them believe that Jesus Christ is not God. Bible teaches he is. Most of them believe you got to be baptized to go to heaven. Bible says you don't. Most of them believe you got to do good works to earn salvation. Bible says by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. Most of them believe that no second coming of Christ. I expect them before the message is over. 
Most of them believe no tribulation period. They're obviously never been married for very long. <clears throat> Most of them don't believe there's ever been a rapture, going to be a rapture. Bible says there is. And nothing that we teach or the Bible teaches uh, do they believe. And every one of them will forsake the nation of Israel as God's people and believe that they now have taken the place of the nation of Israel. And if I would put them before you today, and based on the Bible that we know, ask you this question, could these people be saved yet believe and reject truth and live a religious lifestyle outside the Bible and still be saved? Because every one of them will stand here and defend the fact that they are a Christian. Every one of them will defend the fact that they have been saved, and every one of them will claim to be a Christian and on their way to heaven. A hundred percent of you, if you know anything about the Bible at all, would say, absolutely not. And in spite of that, you got to remember this. Most of them, being unsaved, do more work in their church than some of you do who are saved. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses out every day knocking on doors. I mean, they got strict laws. But now, you got to understand the reason why they do that, because if they don't do that, they believe they can lose their salvation. See, God gave you your salvation, never take it away, so you just shaft him and say, well, I'll do whatever I want to do. But that's the difference, basically. Now, I'll bring in another group of people. On that first group, you'd say, absolutely not. But if I brought in another group of people who also claim to be Christian and saved, and yet... They all live in the former lust that Paul talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. They'll fornicate at the drop of a hat. They, uh, but they got Christian morals. They won't fornicate with somebody that's not a Christian. I had a girl actually tell me that one time. <laughs> no sanctity in marriage. They'll have illegitimate kids. You know, and I understand that, that it happens. And I don't ever begrudge anybody when it happens because there's a process that God can get the honor and glory even out of that, and many times he does. But, you know, there are some people who just, they, 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 have, they have illegitimate kids by multiple fathers, and they think it's, 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 it's the greatest thing in the world. You know, they think it's some badge of honor. I had one girl tell me, she says, well, I just love to have kids. Obviously, you got four by four different fathers, and none of them are supporting any of them. But that's, that's the world we live in today. You see them drink, do drugs, all the former lust that Paul talked about. Yet because they're our friends, because they're our family, because they're our husband or our wives, and yet we will think this crowd is saved, but the other group is not. Now keep in mind, both groups can live like hell, one to the world and the other one through a false religion. And we think that one's okay and the other's not. When in fact, they both do exactly the same thing. They live their life the way they want in spite of what the Bible says. They reject the truth of the Word of God, just two different areas, one religiously and one in the world. They both reject and resent any proper biblical correction and both claim to be truly saved and Christian. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but as a Bible-believing Christian, I have a tough time with that because I don't see any difference between the two. It may be two different areas, but the bottom line is truth is truth. And if you reject truth in a false religion or you reject truth because you want to live in your former lust, it's the same problem. Now, let me break it down for you even lower. Talking about lowest common denominators. Let me use a couple here as an example. Gene and Diane Geisiger. 
Gene brought up a question a couple Thursday nights ago after Bible study about three weeks ago at the end. I wish he'd have brought it up earlier that night because I'd have loved to kick it around. It would have been fun. But we were talking about Cain and Abel, remember? And we were talking about the devil's seed versus God's seed. And we were going through 2 Corinthians 11, 1 John, Genesis 4, Genesis 3, talk, kicking the word beguiled around, you know, and going through all of that. And Gene came up to me after the Bible study. And let me tell you about Gene, first of all. I got to put Gene in perspective. Gene and his wife come over about once a month in the, we have in the Bible together. You know, I have a standard thing where you can come over and we'll study the Bible together, anybody in the church or not in the church. If you just want to get it together with me in the Bible, that's great. And we have a great time in the Bible. I think I enjoy those times. Uh, you know, I get a lot of issues I got to deal with that are not pleasant or they take a lot of work or this or that. And I'm all for that. But the height of my week is when people come over and we just sit down and we have fun with the Bible. And Gene and Diane have been around for a long time, and uh, it, it, we always have fun. Uh, you know, I look at, uh, uh, we just, two of our youngest guys in our church here, uh, 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 Aaron and Tobin, uh, they both have come over. And I'll tell you what, I could turn the lights out in my house and be pitch black, and they come in and open up their Bible, and the lights would come on. They're excited about the Bible. They want to know everything. They want to do whatever God wants them to do. I have, I have fun with people like that. I, I, I think it's great. Now, Gene... He's been around for a while, and he's a thinker. He really is. He's a computer guy, but he's not a nerd. <laughs> but he's a computer guy by trade, and he has an investigative mind. He really does. He really does. He not only has a heart for God, but he's got, I think, a mind for God. And uh, I've known him for 30-plus years, and I've, I've, always, uh, I've always felt that way. Now, Diane, what can I say? There's no sweeter woman in the world than Diane Geisinger. I mean, I'm not kidding you. We all love you. You guys jumped in here about five weeks ago, eight weeks ago, however long it was, 12 weeks ago, last year, I don't know, whenever you got here. And boy, I've never seen a couple just take into this thing and get into the thing going. I never, and I, you know, and, and you know, beauty, they balance each other out perfectly. You ever notice that? I mean, they really do. Like so many of you do. You know, you, you, your, your spouse, God just gave you who you needed, who you wanted, and, and you know, and you got a big mouth and she shuts you up and, and, and you know, and she, you're just beautiful. And I don't, how long have you been married? Did I marry you? I what? I stood up with you. I knew I was involved in it somehow. Yeah, I know. But I don't think you ever fight, do you? I don't think it. Well, maybe so. All right, so it isn't Romeo and Juliet. We'll make it Beauty and the Beast then. But it works. You know what I'm saying? Now, his question was this, and it's a great question, but it's a scary question. I pondered this question for many, many years. You know, there's things in the Bible that I, I see and, and I, 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 I'll probably never figure out. I'm there. They scare me. If it's true, it really scares me. I always look for alternative ways around it. And in this particular question, I, got a, I told Gene, I said, I, I won't fight you on this one, buddy. I said, I thought about this a long time, and this one really bothers me. He said, based on what we said tonight, the devil's seed and God's seed, what do you think about this? That's what he always does it. He always says, what do you think about this? I love it. And he took me over to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Now, we've been talking about corruptible seed, incorruptible, the devil's seed, God's seed, and here's what he said. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 Peter wrote this, being born again, 
not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Now, his question to me was this. If the King James Bible is the uncorruptible seed, the word of God, and it is, and all the new Bibles are corruptible seed and come through the wrong line, which they appear to, his question was, can a person be saved with a new Bible if it's corruptible seed versus the Word of God, which we know is the uh, incorruptible seed? Now, that's a tough question, man. That's a tough question. I, I personally think it's even tougher to, to answer. But I'll tell you what, it forces us to think some things over again because if the verse says what it means and it means what it says, well, that answers a lot of questions. You say, well, he's not talking about the, the, the Word of God. Then what's he talking about? Look at the verse again. Being born again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the Word of God. He is talking about the Bible. This is not some abstract concept. He's saying there that there's a corruptible Word of God and there's an incorruptible Word of God. Gene's question to me. I'm not telling you this is true. I'm making my point. Gene's question to me was, can you get saved with a corruptible Bible if it's corruptible seed? I'll tell you what, that would explain so many of God's people are the way they are, wouldn't it? That, that'll answer why a man claimed to be saved and, 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 and have a Bible, go to church, but never have a real inward salvation because if that verse says what it says and means what it says, it has to be born again by incorruptible seed. That's a tough one. That'd be fun to kick around on a Thursday night. I may just throw that out to see what you think about it. Now, I know the alternative to that. Some of you say, well, my kid grew up in a Bible-based home, right? Bible, all of it. Or I, I grew up in a Bible-based home. You know a Christian home can be a great thing or a terrible thing? We always think of a Christian home has to be a good thing. Uh, it's like the Christian school moment because the moment they put Christian on it, we thought that the devil couldn't get in there. So you sent your kid to Christian school and you could just sleep good at night because you went to a Christian school. The devil would never dare to go into a Christian school. So therefore, your kids were assured to get a Christian education. How'd that work out for you? Doesn't work out very well. It's like the idea, well, I'll go to church to find a spouse instead of going to a bar. Hey, the same people on church were in the bars last night. You don't find a good spouse in church. You find one in Christ. We talked about that before, didn't we? In pastor circles, we have a running joke about Bible colleges. We say, now keep in mind, Bible colleges are designed by man to take a young man or a young lady in and build their relationship with God, get them ready to serve God, and then send them out for the rest of their life. In pastor circles, we, we, we joke about it. And, we, and most of them have been to Bible college, even though I haven't. But they said that Bible colleges, uh, when you go there to find God and prepare yourself for God, that the Bible college is the easiest and best place to get out of fellowship with God. Amen. And it's true. Absolutely true. And the best place to have your kids raised up under Bible teaching and die and go to hell is in a Christian family that is as phony as the Bible colleges that you'll go to. Calling your family Christian doesn't make it Christian anymore and spending $100,000 buying a NASCAR race car makes you a race car driver. 
If you grew up in an unsaved family, which many of you have, you know, Timothy did. He had a saved mom and an unsaved dad, it looks like. Then you have some kind of good comparison. You have contrast. But growing up in a Christian home can get real confusing for a child if the parents are not at the top of their game. I mean, remember, Genesis chapter 3, the first attack of the devil. He didn't attack an unsaved family. He attacked a saved family. He went into two people who were made in God's image and God's likeness, picture of two Christians, got one boy and then got that boy to kill the other boy. He didn't attack Nimrod's family. He didn't attack, wait till the unshaved family came around. He attacked, his first attack was with a shaved family who in an Old Testament extra sense was born again just like you and me, just not the same way. Let me ask you a question. This will prove my point. Who killed Abel? I was hoping somebody would say that. They probably all would say Cain did. Well, Cain may have killed him, but Cain didn't really kill him. You know who killed Abel? Adam and Eve. The moment they disobeyed God and left God's word, they set in a motion, a process that got their son killed. It started with them. You better see that. I mean, just because you say, well, I grew up in a Christian home. That means nothing. That means nothing. The first devil's first attack, he has not changed his tactics in 6,000 years. I mean, it's the same. In the book of Exodus, you find a great story in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. It shows you the three ways that the devil will weaken a Christian family and ultimately get the kids and generation after that. You know what? He got Cain. Cain killed Abel. And then study the generations of Cain. It ain't very pretty. Adam and Eve, because they disobeyed what the Word of God said, put in motion a lifestyle that killed their kid. And God's people today who claim to be saved don't follow the book, will put into motion a lifestyle that'll get their kids killed, get them in hell, soon as I'm stand, sure as I'm standing here. Now, I know that's not popular, but I already made my excuse to you. I'm old school. I can say whatever I want now. <laughs> what Woody Hayes was to football, I am to, I am to churches. So be careful. I may come up beat on you over there. You see, the devil's plan is simple. One, he wants to get everybody here in hell. That was his ultimate plan. Every one of you, including me. He wanted to get you in hell. He worked at it. He put people in your life. When you finally went to church, he sent you a bunch of friends that, that tried to let you not go to church. He put everything in your life to get you not to go to church so you would simply go and die and go to hell. But in many of your cases, it didn't work. God overrode that and God got you saved. So once you're saved, the devil knows he can't ever get you in hell. So you know what his next plan is? He'll let you go to heaven, but one, he'll make you ineffective in the ministry. He'll make you one of these kind of guys or gals who don't really take it seriously. Your kids look at you and see you fornicating all over the world, upstairs, downstairs, her house three days, your house two days. They see all of that, and they see all the drunken and all this and all that, and yet I'm a Christian. We're going to go to church tomorrow, and he just sneaks right in under the radar. He lets you go, but he'll get your family. That's how it works. And when he gets your family, like Adam and Eve, now you put something in motion that'll go on for generations and generations and generations. Oh, I'm telling you, he will not miss our inconsistency. He just won't. Now, we're talking about inner salvation. That produces an outer change. 
We're talking about not just looking at the appearance of something. We're talking about being born again as incorruptible seed. We're talking about not going by the appearance of something, but trying the spirits like Joe asked Thursday night. Now, now here's my issue. And here's where I'm coming from. I know I'm old school. <clears throat> I'm not old school in everything, but when it comes to the book and the Bible, I li- my, my problem is this. And it's your problem too. You just ain't smart enough to figure it out yet. You know what our problem is? If we're going to stand on the book and we're going to do what God says, here's our basic fundamental problem. We live in a Christian world that changes every day, and yet we've got a book that never changes. Amen. You have to make a choice. You have to either choose that you're going to change and be like the world and grow up being a Christian who can do all of the, th- <laughs> do all of the, things, all of the things that the world does, or you're going to realize that let Christianity go to hell in a handbag. Let it go wherever it wants to go. We were at volleyball the other night, if you don't mind telling this story. We were at volleyball the other night, and there were some people there, and they were visiting, and they were relatives of our people here, and they said, I asked them to go out to eat, and they said, no, we got we to gotta go. And I found out later that their church sponsors a gambling ministry that you can go there they'll set up all kinds of poker tables in the gym and the church and then you play and then you get your winnings and you can donate it to any ministry you want where have I been (laughs) where have I been now this same church has also taken a stand that it's okay to social drink in fact, one of the gals, they were all eating an Applebee's one night, uh, one afternoon before they were going to Bible study, and somebody says, oh, I see you're having a margarita. And the girl's answer was, yeah, I don't have to teach tonight. <laughs> she probably would have taught better with a couple under her belt, but we don't know that. <laughs> no, you got a choice to make. You live in a Christian world that changes every day. It will not be long before Baptist churches embrace same-sex marriages. I guarantee you. You say, it'll never happen. Forty years ago, we'd have said it never happened in this country. It's happening now. Over in Europe, they're passing legislation that you can have sex with animals. It'll happen here in time. And whatever happens here weaves its way into Christianity. And now, today, whatever we got going on in Christianity is okay. Because it's all changing. So, therefore, they got to get a Bible and keep changing it. Now, my dilemma, and as I said, it's your dilemma too. You just don't know it yet. Some of you, maybe you do. That's my problem, fundamentally. I live in a changing Christianity that's puke. It stinks. It's everything that is against God. And my problem is I got a book that goes exactly against what everybody thinks Christianity is. That puts me in a bind. The Bible's ruined me. It, no, it's ruined me, man. I'm not only out of touch. I, I grew up thinking I was supposed to be out of touch with the world. I never dreamed I'd have to be out of touch with Christianity. But we're going the way of the world. You go to most churches, you don't get the hell preached out of you anymore. No, no, no. You'll get smoke. You'll get mirrors. You'll get a pastor to ask you what your favorite color is. Now, here's my problem. Here's my issue. In the New Testament, in this book that never changes, I got to tell you something. I can't find any Christians ever mentioned like the ones we got running around here today. Ever notice that? That ever bother you that in the New Testament, you can't find one Christian like we got running around today living in their old former lust of the flesh? No, I mean 1 Corinthians. Yeah, I know. You got a bunch of baby Christians. I understand, but that's immaturity. Peter denied Christ. Yeah, he did. But he went out and wept bitterly. 
You got, you say, well, what about Judas? Well, he was a devil, remember? All through the New Testament book, you have weak Christians, sure. You got struggling Christians, absolutely. And you have Christians who do things wrong and fall into sin. We all can. But absolutely in the New Testament, there is no mention of a man or a woman who claims to get saved and then just lives in their former lust that God saved them from, absolutely nowhere in the Bible. You say, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a man that had sex with his own mother-in-law. Yeah, and how they treat him as an unsaved man. Well, you go in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the great chapter on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and you got a scenario where a husband and wife, and one or the other won't do right. They won't follow the Bible. The wife says, I want to work it out. The husband says, I don't. I'm tired. I'm quit. The wife says, uh, the man says, I want to work it out. The wife says, no, I don't. They want to do, one of them wants to do what's right. It goes on, and one of the parties won't do what's right. What does the Bible say? Let the unbelieving depart. Let him depart. Treat him as an unsaved man. You don't find Christians like we got running around today in the Bible. You don't find Christians who get saved, take the blood of Christ, have a real internal change, and then just go live like hell the rest of their lives as Christians. They're not in there. They're nowhere to be found. I mean, they're just not. Now, going back to Gene's question here a minute about corruptible seed and incorruptible seed. I will tell you for sure what all the new Bibles do. They, the new Bibles, create an atmosphere of no Bible truth and no Bible doctrine in absolute form. They put Christianity into an abstract form. They make Christianity some concept with no absolute truth. They will tell you that you cannot get a handle on our copy of the inerrant Word of God. Once they tell you that and you believe that, you're free to make up whatever you want to make up because you've got no absolute standard to be accountable to. That's, right. That's what we've done. Has taken all the absolute truth out of the Christian life and especially salvation and replaced a clear truth of the Word of God and its principles with a feeling. We've taken repentance out of salvation. We don't even know what repentance means. And you've got a lot of people running around saying, yeah, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm born again, I'm saved. When they don't even understand the key of salvation, it's turning from your sin. Now, that's what you've got to deal with today. devil has never changed tactics from Genesis chapter 3. Now, when I say I'm about to say, I'm not suggesting you're not saved. There's a tendency in a preaching a message like this that, that everybody who, uh, you know, can't get a clear or you've had some problems in your life or whatever, that the first thing you go to, I'm not saying that. My goal is not to, there will be no invitation today. I will not, it'll be, it will be like the Red Sea flooding over in Exodus. I, you know, everybody who's got it, I'm, I'm not about that. I, I'm just talking to you. Listen to me. But I will say this. If you've been saved five years or more, I always throw that out there. I show that out there because you, you have to have five years just to figure things out. So if you're five years or under, listen to what I'm saying, but, uh, you know, and take it to heart, yes, but, but don't beat yourself up over it. I say that all the time. I give you five years grace. And, and yet today, if you've been saved longer than five years, and you can't take your Bible and lay out what happened to you the day you got saved, 
I mean, if you can't take the Word of God and explain to me, your kids, or somebody else what changed with your body, your soul, or your spirit, you can't lay it out through the Bible. Now, I'm asking now. I'm not suggesting anything. I'm asking. I know some of you are young Christians, and you're working up through it. You're coming through Discipleship 1. You're going through Discipleship 2, and you're getting a handle on it. You're fine. You're going to be just fine. I'm not talking about you. But let me ask you a question. If you've been saved five years or more, and right now you couldn't explain what happened to you the day you got saved, how do you know you're saved if you don't even understand the process? Because you had some experience? Because you had some feeling? Because you went forward in some service, you said a prayer, because you feel you're saved, because you just feel it in your heart, because you got deep little voice down inside you says you're okay. Where's the witness of the Holy Spirit of God? Where are the things that witness to your salvation? I'll give you a great example. You're all here today. But if you, this was a college, and you all came here to join this college, and you say, I want to be part of this college and I want to join, I'd say to you, well, I can't let you join. And you say, why is that? I said, you're going to have to prove you were born. And you say to me, here I am. I'm standing here. You realize you can't prove you were really born into your family by just presenting yourself to somebody? The fact that you say you were born or you're standing here today doesn't necessarily mean you were ever really born. The world will not accept that uh, by that standard in most things. You have to have proof of the fact that you were really born. To do anything meaningful in life, you have to show proof that you were born and the fact that you're standing in front of that person doesn't make any difference. You have to have a record of your birth. We know it as a birth certificate. A record of the fact that you were really born into your family and that you are really who you are standing there. If you want to get a passport, they have to have a birth, and not a copy of it, the original. If you want to go into the military, you have to show your birth certificate. If you want to get, go to college, you have to show a birth certificate. When you want to get a social security, everything in life that is meaningful that's going to lead you anywhere, you've got to prove that you were born, and you have to show that there someplace is a record of that birth. Now, if that's true in the physical world about your first birth, don't you think it might also be true in the spiritual world with your second birth? I'm sure it is. Take your Bible and turn over to 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to show you one of the greatest verses in the Bible on your record. This is your Christian new birth certificate right here. you have people who worry about they lose their salvation or don't know if they're saved, it's because they can't prove they were really saved to begin with. They have no record of it. You're like somebody standing there wanting to get into a college or wanting to get into the military, wanting to do this, and they keep turning you away because you can't prove you were really born. And the frustration that must be with the fact that you're standing there as proof you were born. I got a lot of people go around saying, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. When you ask for the proof, the witness of the Spirit, they don't have any. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13. It says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Now, that's one of the greatest passages in the Bible on knowing for sure you're saved. It's probably one of the greatest sermons you'll ever preach, too. You can break that thing down very easily. First thing it simply says this is God's given you a record. 
You have a record of your salvation. You want a new birth certificate? You got it. And the record is simply this, that God hath given to us eternal life and this life is in his son. Notice, it didn't say and this life was in the church. It didn't say and this life was in baptism. It didn't say this life was in living a good life. It says God's given us eternal life and the record says this life is in his son. Now, easiest verse in the Bible, verse 12. Easiest verse in the Bible. Sitting here today, you either have him or you don't. He that hath the Son of God hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You either have him or you don't. There's no middle ground. And if you got him, and it's a real inward change, then there's got to be an outward change. And if there's no outward change, you better check up on the inward change. Now look what he says, verse 15. These things. What things? The things in the record, the Bible, the Word of God. The record God's given you. The record you should have. And these things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that ye may hope you have eternal life. Is that what it says? You may think you have eternal life. Is that what it says? It says you may know you have eternal life. Do you know that today? That's the question. And if you say yes, you better have a witness that witnesses to that. Just that simple. You have a record. You have a new birth certificate. And verse 14 says, and this is the confidence. This is why most of God's people who claim to be saved never do anything. You don't have any confidence to do anything. You know where you get your confidence from? The record. The record. Knowing that record. Well, I must tell you right now, if I had to produce my first birth certificate that I prove I was saved, born, I wouldn't even know where to begin because I don't know where it's at. Hope you do. <laughs> I don't know where it's at. If you ask me to prove my second one, I'll be all over you like ugly on an ape. <laughs> I got the second one down. That's why I don't care about the first one. See that? You have a record. And everything in life, you have a record of it. You have a birth certificate. Cop pulls you over and says, are you allowed to drive this car? You show him the record of your driver's license. You have a record that you paid your taxes when the IRS says you didn't. won't make any difference, but you got one. <laughs> you go to the store and you buy clothes. You get a receipt. That's a record. You have a dog. You got a dog license. That's a record. And everything. You go to Starbucks and get your latte. You got a record, a receipt <laughs> that you got a latte. You can prove the car's yours because you got a title. You can prove you pay the tax bill because you got a receipt. The phone bill, the water bill, the cable bill, the trash bill. The bills are all receipted. There's a record of your payment. But when it comes to our salvation, we don't have a record and can't prove anything. Just got a warm, fuzzy feeling. Something fundamentally wrong with that. But then I'm old school. The New Testament was black and white. If the new Bibles do anything at a minimum... They produce an atmosphere of instability, a Christian world and lifestyle based on feeling and emotion, our senses instead of Bible truth, doctrine, a milk toast baby formula Christianity that has no power in it because it has no meat in it, no doctrine. And remember, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says the Bible is valuable for four things. And the first thing is doctrine, telling you what's right and then showing you what's wrong. When Bible Christianity from 1888 to 2013 went without the true incorruptible Word of God now for a long time, 
and operated out of corruptible world. Then generation after generation was eroded and went into apostasy. You know what happened? I'll give you just a quick bit of history here. We've got plenty of time. In 1888, Westcott and Hort had just put out the new translation over the King James Bible. And it started a flood of new translation that was supposed to replace that old Blackback 66, the incorruptible Word of God. They come out with the RSV of 1888. In, uh, in uh, Sarasota, Florida, that same year, maybe the year after, the whole Southern Baptist Convention. Now, keep in mind, the Southern Baptist Convention was that time was the biggest contention of Baptist people in, on, on the planet. At their Sarasota Convention, they, adapt, they adopted and officially adopted the RSV and dumped the King James Bible. That was in 1888. By 1920, just two or three generations later, the Southern Baptist Church Convention was in a mess. In all of their seminaries, their biggest one being in Louisville, now the college professors were teaching that the story of Adam and Eve was a fable. They're teaching evolution in their Bible colleges. They're telling you the story of Noah's Ark wasn't true. It was just a legend handed down. They're now teaching that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. This absolutely destroyed the Southern Baptist Convention. And it wasn't until the 1940s that men that were in it got fed up with it, and a guy by the name of J. Frank Norris broke out of the Southern Baptist Convention and started the fundamentalist movement. Now, I know the word fundamentalist is a bad word today, and it, it really is in many cases, but in its original form, it's simply that men that a bunch of guys were busting out of an apostate church and going back to that Bible, and they were going to build their churches on the fundamentals that they had lost. This church is a great-grandchild of that. My pastor in Ohio, Dr. Harold Henniger, was one of J. Frank Norris's boys that left with him out of the Southern Baptist Convention, built the Canton Baptist Temple, produced me, brought me to Kansas City. I built this church based on what they got back there. He wouldn't compromise. I won't compromise because I know where my roots go back. Amen. That's my problem today. It's your problem too. You just ain't figured it out yet. When, when, when as this church, generation after generation only got worse. Generation after generation of people have gotten weaker. They have less understanding than the last generation before them because each generation, as we go down through time, is farther removed from the truth of the Word of God that they once had and rejected. Back in the, I've said it many, many times, back in the 1600s, 1700s, even the early part of the 1800s, when you went into a Christian bookstore and want to say, I want a Bible, you would say, the guy would say, well, what do you want? I got two. I got the King James 1611 or I got the Douay Reams of the Roman Catholic Church. Which one do you want? You only had two to pick from. Only two. Today it's all changed. You go into your, your Christian bookstore today and you'll walk around the corner and there'll be 500 translations of the Bible. You'll be hard pressed to find the King James Bible today. But you'll find everything else. And people think, wow, what a decision. It's not a decision. Nothing has changed at all. You still only have two Bibles to pick from. The King James Bible is still the incorruptible Word of God. Every new translation on the market comes from the Douay Reams and is corrupted someplace along the line. I don't care if there's 500. You only got two to pick from, God's or the other guy's. That's why it's so different from Paul's time today. Real Bible, New Testament Christianity didn't even, doesn't even exist anymore. You have to know this to work with people. That's why just like the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons and the Church of Christ and all the rest who think they're God's people and saved, when in Paul's time they didn't exist either. All those churches don't even start till the 1800s. 
So you have a bunch of God's people today. I mean a bunch of people who claim to be saved and live in their former lust of their flesh. And in both cases, they're both as lost as can be. And neither one of them existed in the New Testament. Talk about deceiving yourself. You see, there's a witness of the Spirit that has to be in our lives. And if not, you better look at some things. Now, in closing here, uh, here's the other problem we have today. And here's really the real issue. And I don't, there's no way we're going to fix this. When Christianity was at its greatest, the persecution of Christians was at its highest. This is extremely important. Today, we're a bunch of baby, weak Christians who can't stand for anything, as I said. One good thing, uh, one good thing about persecution is, is when it tends to weed out the non-hackers, the middle-of-the-road Christians. When they try to kill you, when they rack you, when they burn you with the stake, when they poke your eyes out with hot irons or take your little babies and throw them to hungry pigs and watch you watch to eat them and try to get you to deny Christ, it tends to weed out uh, the, the crowd that really isn't serious. The fire of persecution always purges the true church. But the devil, devil never makes the same mistake twice. What he couldn't accomplish with the rock and the inquisition and the burning and the hot irons and the tongues being cut out he simply accomplished by giving us everything we could ever want as Christians, making us comfortable, spoiling us, making us effeminate and weak, losing our sense of, of battle and standing for the Lord. He gave us churches that conform to the world. He gave us Bibles that take out the blood. He gave us pastors who instead of preaching, as I said, the word of God to you, they, they apply to your senses and your feelings. They put in light, smoke, music, all the effects of a 3D movie except the Bible. No truth. Bible studies are now where you go and share your opinion, your experience with God. Where you sit around in a little room, you read a passage of Scripture, and everybody takes their turn. The leader says, what do you think it means? 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 Here's what I think it means. Oh, Thank you for sharing. We had a wonderful time today sharing the Word of God. You know, it doesn't really mean anything except if it means something to you. So let's all go out now with a nice warm feeling and enjoy our experience with God. That's where you're at, kids. Plastic preachers, plastic churches, plastic Christians, Plastic salvation. Phil told me a couple of weeks ago, I, 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 he, I said, hey, I haven't seen uh, so-and-so for a while. You know, you know what happened to him? And he says, yeah, I think they're mad at me, and they're not coming back. And I'm thinking, what'd you do, kill their dog, Phil? You beat their kids? I mean, did you insult them? Did you say to the lady, nice dress? Too bad they didn't have it on your side. What'd you do, Phil? <laughs> He says, well, they wanted to set one place and we were trying to save it for somebody, set, set another situation. I asked them to sit over here instead and they got mad and they left. That's Christianity today. You know what I say to something like that? If that's what gets you mad and that's where you're, if that ticks you off that you're going to leave the church over the fact you can't sit in your seat, what, has it got your imprint on it or what? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> See you later, man. I mean, there's worse things in life that you're going to have to deal with as a Christian. Not in this Christianity. 
See, that's the tragedy today. Oh, I'm being persecuted. I'm suffering. What's happened? Well, they took my chair. <laughs> well, back then they took your head. They took your tongue. They took your husband. They took your wife. They took your kids. But now, on the same par, they took my chair. There's a song. I'm not a very good singer, but it kind of goes like this. So long, it's so nice to know you. <laughs> now you have it all laid out. Why we as God's people are the way we are. Why man does what he does, says what he says, and thinks the way he thinks. Now some of you will, will get this and it will change your whole perspective. Others, nothing will change about you. You're just going to go on the way you go. You see, we have a created and installed a Christianity that absolutely has nothing to do with the Bible and never existed down through the history of the church. We now have a Christianity that we have to deal with today that never you find in the New Testament, and you have people who claim to be Christians who you can't find one person in the New Testament who got saved, really got saved, and then lived their life in the former lust, the same lust <laughs> that God was supposed to save you from. Now we have churches church services that never existed in the New Testament. We now have a Bible that never existed. We have pastors who, who completely lost their way and music that has never existed. And it all produces a Christianity that never existed. Men and women who claim to be saved but have absolutely no understanding of what it means. We, and, and developed a Christian mindset and a Christian lifestyle that you can truly be saved and, and totally live your life in the old flesh, in the very things that God saved you from. That's the problem today. This is why we're Old Paths Baptist Church. This is why we will stay Old Paths Baptist Church. And this is my battle. This is your battle. We look at our former way of life and the what it was and how it was against the Word of God. How do we think we can actually truly be saved and still live the old former way? You can't. Only in this fairy tale Christianity that we have today. Our job is, the, our problem is the fact that uh, we're, the, the battle is living in a decaying Christian era with all the phoniness that has absolutely rotted away and has nothing to do with anything remotely connected to the Bible in most cases. Walking and existing in a changing Christian world as if it leaves, uh, you know, as it leaves the very truth that put it in motion back in the book of Acts. And there I say it again, our problem. Living in a changing world with an unchanging book of absolute principles. And you know as well as I do, Amos 3.3, 3, how can two walk together except they be agreed? My Bible says, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Someone asked me last week, one of our young men, where do I start in my life to get the right mindset? I've heard what you said in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 10, I really want that in my life. What, what is the process? How do, I begin, uh, how do I begin to get the right mindset and get everything going in my life the right way? Well, again, I, I could, I, I'll tell you just what the wisest man who ever lived said. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 13, Solomon said this, and my suggestion to you, if you want to get where God wants you to be and you want to be everything that God wants you to uh, do, you start, we've already learned, with a willing heart and a willing mind. And Solomon said this, Commit thy works, what you do, unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. Start doing what God saved you for, and you'll never get the wrong mindset about what God wants you to do. In Vietnam, 
we followed a, 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 a principle that was a failed principle. It never worked, but they thought it would. It was called winning hearts and minds. And it was a process that we as Americans would go into Vietnam and we'd win the hearts of the people. And by winning the hearts of the people, we'd change the minds of the people toward Americans. Never worked. Never had a chance in a political scene, but that is a biblical concept. What God changes your heart the day you get saved. If you start doing for him, your mind will follow. That's the process. Get involved. Learn the Bible. Get discipled. Get everything that you need. If there's any doubt in your mind and your heart of where you're at, come and talk to me. I don't want to say this to, to scare you today. It was never in my tent to scare anybody. I've been accused all my life about preaching and fear-mongering and people to be afraid. But I can say that is better to be hell-scared than hell-scorched. You saw it last week in our message on the pattern. A pattern of good works will always produce a pattern of sound speech. You know, I know the ultimate goal. We talked about this for all of us. Is Everybody, we all want to be happy. We want to be content in life. We, we want to be as happy as we can. You know, uh, I, I watch it in my own dogs. They're not anywhere human, but they follow the same basic patterns. When they're downstairs and they're going to take a nap, they'll look for the most comfortable spot they can find. That's what human nature. We, we want to be happy. We want to be comfortable. And yet, we go about it the wrong way. I heard a guy say one time, and it's so true. He says, if you want to be happy and content for an hour, take a nap. If you want to be happy and content for a day, then go fishing. If you want to be happy and content for a week, go buy a new car. If you want to be happy for a month, get married. <laughs> His saying, not mine. <laughs> if you want to be happy and content for a year, win the lottery. But if you want to be happy and content for the rest of your life, do what God has saved you to do. Because there's no greater contentment and no greater happiness for a child of God than knowing that you're doing what God saved you for. And I will preach that message from behind this pulpit till either I die or Jesus comes back. That the only way for you to be happy in life once you're a new creature in Christ Jesus is to literally be a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. And when you don't see them, then you know what you're dealing with. Don't judge by appearance. Don't judge by the appearance. Things are not always the way they appear. Look for what the Word of God tells you to look for. And look to the Word of God and its principles. And there alone is the answer to every problem we got. Now, now you know where we're at today. This is a great message for you to use in your own personal life, but helps you in, in choosing your friends and situations and, and everything that you've got to look at in life. It's all there. It shows you what we're really up against why we struggle, why we're, we're, our church is going to be different. If you're looking for a church and you want one to fit in with all the other churches, you're honestly, I love you, but you're in the wrong place. We're not going to fit in with them. We're old school. We're old paths. We'll stay on the right path. We'll stay with the old book and we'll preach the old truth. We'll sing the old songs. We won't get into a, a, a coffee shop mentality where we just all go to la-la land. We'll stick with the truths that got us saved. And that will carry us through. Every head bowed, every eye closed.